Uh, We are tackling uh, eight chapters of Isaiah tonight, so I'm very grateful to Jess for uh, praying for us already. Who are you going to trust when the enemy is at the gate? When you look out and you see a vast army arrayed against you, bent on steamrolling you into the dust, will you trust the Lord your God? who has made great and wonderful promises, but is unseen? Or will you trust something or someone you can see, seemingly more immediate and present? Who will you trust when the enemy is at the gate? Well, the enemies may have changed, but the question is the same for us today as it was for the people of Jerusalem in about 700 BC, when Isaiah the prophet was preaching. We're starting a series, as Ellie said, in chapters 13 to 35 of Isaiah. And this is going to be the big question throughout. Who are we going to trust? Who are we going to trust when the cost of living crisis takes another bite into our finances as the latest bill hits the inbox? When the doctor's letter arrives with those test results we've been sweating over for three days. When the leadership of the Church of England continues to step away from the historic faith grounded in God's word. The crises do change, but the choice has not. In many ways, it should be an easy answer, shouldn't it? Come back to me, uh, with me to chapter 13. Verse 1, it's on page 698 if you've closed it. Let me read verses 1 to 4 again. A prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop, shout to them, beckon to them, to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath. Those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. Well, as I said, it it shouldn't be a hard choice in many ways. Obviously, we'd trust the Lord God, the one who can muster an army that no nation can stand against, no kingdom can withstand But in reality, of course, it's not that easy, is it? We're not purely sort of rational beings. What's filling our eyes fills our minds. The people of God in Isaiah's day were rocked by multiple crises which filled their eyes and made them waver in their trust for God. Let me set the scene a little bit, and then we'll come back to see what we make of these chapters before us. Isaiah lived through the reign of four kings of Judah, the southern kingdom of God's people, centered on Jerusalem. Chapter 6 tells us that he was called by God to be his spokesman, a prophet, in the year that King Uzziah died. So that's about 740 BC. The last king he saw was Hezekiah, who died in the year 687 BC. So those years were a tumultuous time in the ancient Near East, as great powers jockeyed for position. So we'll have a map coming up that will help us a little bit, I hope. So on the one hand was Egypt, 
that ancient civilization based on the Nile, with dynasties stretching back thousands of years already by this point. Now it was ruled by Kushites from the south. On the other hand was Assyria, the new aggressive expansionist superpower. And sandwiched in between, in the middle, is this little strip of land, a highway from Assyria to Egypt, avoiding the wilderness. And it was home to Judah, as well as the northern kingdom Israel, which is sometimes known in these chapters as Ephraim, and to the Philistines, Moab and Syria, also known as Aram, based in Damascus. Now, the final player in this drama is Babylon, another ancient civilization which, back in Genesis, is called Babel. At the moment, though, Babylon is sort of at a low ebb. It's not a superpower uh, when Isaiah was speaking these words. So those are the players, and here's the action we need to know about to help us, the scenes, the two crises. The first crunch moment comes in Ahaz's reign. It was at the heart of chapters 6 to 12, which we um, preached through in the autumn of 2021. You can listen to those on the website if you want to. Israel has ganged up with Syria, and they're pressurizing Judah to join an alliance against Assyria. Now, the word of the Lord comes to King Ahaz by the way of Isaiah, and he says, don't give in to these threats. Don't join the alliance. I, the Lord, will use Assyria to destroy Israel and Syria. Just trust me. Or in the words of chapter 7, verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. But Ahaz doesn't trust God. Instead, as 2 Kings chapter 16 tells us, he calls for help to Assyria because he's Assyria's vassal. That's kind of a bit like a, a mafia-style setup. Ahaz essentially pays protection money to um, Assyria and gets to be called Assyria's friend. Now Ahaz pays Assyria to attack Damascus to remove that threat. Assyria then goes on to sack Samaria, the capital of Israel. So Judah is saved, but as a result of Ahaz's lack of faith, God promises that Assyria will come back and will come against Judah. Okay, that might all seem a little bit complicated, so I've tried to sum it up in a headline. Here's the headline from Crisis 1. Ahaz chooses to trust Assyria, not the Lord God, and disaster is foretold. Okay, that's crisis number one. Crisis number two, fast forward 20 or 30 years, and Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, is now on the throne. Now, he seems to be lured into uh, rebelling against Assyria. And the king of Assyria comes and he defeats an Egyptian army on the way to capturing all the fortified cities of Judah, except for Jerusalem, which is then surrounded by a massive army. Unlike his father, Hezekiah now does trust God. The angel of the Lord kills the Assyrian army and Sennacherib, the king, troops off home where he's later assassinated by his sons. So headline of crisis number two, Hezekiah eventually trusts the Lord 
who saves Judah. Okay, last bit of history, then I promise we will get back uh, to our chapters. At some point in all this, some envoys come from Babylon to Hezekiah, and they sort of butter him up. Now, as I said, they're not super important uh, at this moment, and Hezekiah kind of shows them around all his treasure and that sort of stuff. And it seems like they're preparing the ground for another anti-Assyrian alliance. Okay, so headline again, Babylon is not a major power in Isaiah's day, but Hezekiah seems to be looking at a possible anti-Syrian alliance. Okay, let's try and bring it all back uh, to these chapters, um, and you'll hopefully see why we needed to see those things. So the question that Isaiah is constantly um, asking the kings and the people is this. Who are you going to trust? The Lord God or the surrounding nations? The Lord God or your clever political manoeuvres? The Lord God or your fortress, your walls, your secure water supply? And it's into that context, with those questions in mind, that we get this series of prophecies against the nations surrounding Judah on all sides. They're up there on the screen. Babylon, the Philistines, Moab, Damascus, Cush, and Egypt. And in our remaining time, I want us to see two things about these chapters, which you'll be pleased to know we're not going through line by line, just to reassure you now. The first thing, and by far the longer one, is this. The day of the Lord will be terrible for his enemies. The day of the Lord will be terrible for his enemies. Come with me to chapter 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Lord Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Isaiah leaves us in no doubt that the army that the Lord has gathered will carry out a terrible campaign. I think few of us here will have experienced firsthand the horrors of war, though I'm aware that there will be people here who have seen brutality and violence, and these words may stir up painful memories. But Isaiah does not hold back to express the seriousness, the terror of all this. We get images of the very undoing of creation. So verse 10, if you look at that, the stars, the sun and the moon, they no longer give light. Instead of Adam and Eve's descendants being fruitful and multiplying across the earth, verse 12, people are scarcer than gold. Verse 13, instead of the heavens and the earth being fixed in place, they will tremble and shake. Verses 20 to 22, wild animals will replace 
people and their flocks. It is truly terrifying. And it's not just Babylon. So over the page, if you glance at 14 verse uh, 31, the Philistines, wail you gate, howl you city, melt away all you Philistines. Or 15 verse 1, Moab. Or over the page again, 17 verse 1, Damascus. See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. And then again, 19 verse 4, Egypt. It is truly, truly terrible. War is terrible. The war in Ukraine has brought that sort of back uh, front and centre to us, hasn't it, over the last year? Though it shouldn't really have ever faded from our eyes, given all the unreported wars that are raging around the world. That horror that we see when we look at the news, that means it's right to be deeply moved and even maybe uncomfortable with these images. Christians are not to threaten violence of any kind on anyone, whether they're our so-called enemies or not. And so we need to understand what Isaiah is actually saying. What does this phrase, the day of the Lord, in verses 6 and 9 of chapter 13 mean? The day of the Lord. Well, it's Bible language for the day when the God of all space and time will come in judgment against evil. It is the day, verse 5 and verse 9, when his wrath, his anger, comes against everything that has opposed his good and right rule. He is determined to destroy sin and evil. And no more evil is a good thing, isn't it? No more death, no more oppression, no more hunger, no more hopelessness. That's why there are notes of rejoicing and even sort of taunting through these chapters. God's judgment comes on the Assyrians for the yoke with which they've oppressed God's people at the end of chapter 14. But in this whole section... It's the pride of the nations that is first and foremost in view. So have a look at at verse 11 of chapter 13. The evil singled out there is arrogance and pride. Or again, verse 19. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians. Or we have this incredible passage starting in 14 verse 9. We see the realm of the dead as the spirit of the king of Babylon arrives after he's been slain. So follow through with me from verse 9. The spirits of the other powerful dead kings tell the king of Babylon, verse 10, you have become weak like us in death. Verse 11 You had pomp and sort of show in life, but you're in the grave like everyone else. Verse 12, you were the brightest of stars in the heavens, and now you're in the earth. Verses 13 to 14, you said you would be the greatest 
of the great, like God himself. But you are in the realm of the dead, the depths of the pit, verse 15. Verses 18 to 20, normally kings lie in fancy tombs, but you don't even have that dignity. This is a classic case of Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Babylon sought to make itself great. Indeed, it was great, the greatest of the kingdoms of the earth in its day. But seeking to be God and the pride involved in thinking like that will never go unnoticed by him. Babylon fell to Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. And though it may not have been the sort of violent, cataclysmic event that we see here, it was the end of its dominance. And that was a sort of first fulfillment. But these prophecies also have a second fulfillment, pointing forwards into the future. The great final day of the Lord, when he will judge the whole earth. A day that is certainly coming, as verses 24 to 27 of chapter 14 tell us. We're going to come back to that idea of the great and final day next week when we look at chapters 21 to 23. So do come back for that. It's not just Babylon that's proud. Moab's pride is singled out as the reason for her destruction. So in chapter 16, verse 6 says, We have heard of Moab's pride, how great is her arrogance, of her conceit, her pride and her insolence, but her boasts are empty. Now, we don't know all the details of the background of this prophecy, but it seems likely that Moab had been uh, invaded and many refugees had fled to Judah and were seeking asylum. Now, the terms of that asylum were there in verse 5. They were to accept the house of David over them. In other words, they had to acknowledge that Judah's king, God's chosen king, was the rightful king over them. They were to come under his loving, fair, good rule. But their pride prevented them, and so disaster fell. Likewise, in chapter 19, the Egyptians trusted their idols, their river, their magicians, all to no avail. These nations had or would pillage and oppress God's people and other nations for their own gain and advantage. The day of the Lord will be terrible for his enemies, as he rightly judges them, in order to destroy evil. Each scene of judgment that we're looking at in these chapters on a specific nation for its rebellion against God is a pointer to that great final day. It's a bit like a road sign counting down the miles to the destination. 
And so we need to hear the lesson of these chapters before we do briefly see some glimmers of grace in it as well. That day will be terrible. And so we must avoid God's wrath on his coming day. We mustn't be like the king of Babylon, who tried to take God's place by sitting on his throne. That is not the right place for mortal human beings like us, created and ruled by the mighty God. We do not have the right to ignore his rules and decrees and to make our own. We certainly don't have the right to oppress others, to use them, people equally made in God's image, for our own gain, to feed our pride. This is a warning, but it doesn't have to be a prediction for us. Let's get more specific still. We mustn't be like Moab who had the chance to repent and to come under God's good king. For them, it was an earthly king in Jerusalem. For us, it is God's forever king, Jesus, seated on an eternal throne. We mustn't reject the hand of mercy and security offered by Jesus to us. Now, if that's news to you, please do come and uh, to the back and find out about that Life Explored course, which is starting a week tomorrow. That's exactly the place to ask the questions about all this sort of thing that we're talking about. These prophecies are primarily written for God's people to hear. So what about those of us who have already come under Jesus? Well, we come back to that question from the start. Who are we going to trust? The nations around us? Well, no, that is not a good idea. We have seen that each in turn falls. We'll develop this theme in the coming weeks a bit more. But none of the things that we are tempted to trust, whether that's money, great healthcare, political ideas, lifestyle advice, whatever it is, none of them have a hope of saving us on that day of the Lord. Instead, we must and we can trust the Lord, the one who holds the nations in his hand and directs history by his word. And that's something that we get better at with practice. You may have heard of the 10,000-hour principle The theory goes that you become a real expert at something when you practice for at least 10,000 hours. So everything just becomes sort of routine. All the little bits add up so that under pressure, whether that's on stage at the Wigmore Hall or in a Grand Slam final or in an operating theatre, wherever it is, everything still works smoothly under the best coach the Holy Spirit, we need to practice trusting God in the little things so that when the enemy is at the gate, in whatever form that may be, it is second nature for us to trust God. The day of the Lord will be terrible for his enemies, so we must trust him. 
Here's the second and really quite brief point. The day of the Lord reveals grace. The overall picture of these chapters, as I've said, is pretty bleak. But there are flashes of brilliance like parakeets in the park. It is an act of incredible grace, as we've already spoken about, for the Lord to destroy evil. But on top of that, we have glimpses of restoration, and none more so than at the end of chapter 19. There in verses 19 to 25, Isaiah sees a day when Egypt and Assyria will no longer be enemies. Judah, wedged in the middle, will no longer be a place of battles, a highway for invading armies, but a meeting place of peace as the nations are brought together for healing. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will honour the Lord. And verse 25, if you look at that, he will bless them, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. That's a really beautiful picture of a God who loves to restore and to renew. And it's a picture that Isaiah comes back to again and again and again throughout his book. This is a God of incredible grace and restoration. The day of the Lord will be terrible for his enemies and it will reveal grace. The enemy will come to the gate. The day of the Lord will certainly come one day. Who are we going to trust on that day?